just because someone's interested in yoga doesn't mean that they're thinking yoga 24 seven, right? Like you only have, there's 24 hours in the day. What else are they interested in? And Mm -hmm. so that's, what's really powerful. I think with what we do is we can show you, okay, yeah, here's the other things that they spend time doing. And that can be really interesting for creative brainstorming, whether it's what content to create, is there an event that we could run? Is there co-marketing? Like it actually does go outside the world of digital. Once you start to apply it in different ways, So yes, absolutely. And we think about that a lot is, yeah, this person is interested in yoga, but they're also really interested in this other thing. And oh, by the way, that other thing would be really easy for you to tap into as a brand. Welcome to Wave Social Podcast powered by Arcade Studios. My name's Mike. I'm here with my co-host Mitzi, and we've curated a show for digital marketers, advertisers, and modern entrepreneurs who want to stop chasing the tide and start making waves online. Each episode, we'll sit down with the tastemakers and strategic minds behind some of the most engaged communities and -and up-and-coming brands. We'll pull back the curtain on their strategies and experiences to uncover the methodology behind their seismic impact. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Before we get started, we want to tell you about We Edit Podcasts. We launched our show, Wave Social Podcast, last year, and uh, it was something we've been looking forward to for a long time, but there was a lot of stuff that we just didn't know how to do ourselves. Things like audio, engineering, transcription, all that good stuff like editing, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't have a clue. So we pulled in the We Edit Podcast team to help us with that stuff so we could focus on the stuff that we know best. Exactly. So we get to focus on interviewing guests, finding the best guests and the most valuable guests for our listeners. And they take care of all the editing. They make us sound really good. They take out all the ums and ahs. And we get a finished product that we're really proud of. Yeah. So if you're looking to start a podcast, we want to introduce you to these guys because they can just help you rise above the noise while everyone else is starting a podcast too. This can help you just get a leg up on the rest. Yeah. So if you want to join us with the We Edit Podcast team, go to wavesocialpodcast.com slash we edit podcasts with an S at the end to get 15% off your first month of services. Can't wait to hear your show. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Charlie Grinnell. He is the CEO at Rightmetric, which is a digital marketing research firm based in Vancouver, Canada. They provide audience and competitor insights to marketing strategists, and they do a lot of crazy wizardry with data, which we'll get into on the show. Prior to Rightmetric, he was previously head of social media at Aritzia, global social media manager, sports at Red Bull HQ, and digital marketing specialist at Red Bull Canada in Toronto. For that, he spent six years working in video production for brands like Arcteryx, NBC Sports, and Nike, just to name a few. On top of all those heavy hitters, too, he was named 30 Under 30 by BC Business Magazine last year, which is where they're based. So that's really cool. He's a boss and had a lot of insight, not just creatively, but also specific to data. And uh, I think you're going to enjoy a lot of our conversation. Yeah, we get really nerdy on this one. It was fun. Yeah. I love having a podcast like this because it gives me an excuse to get nerdy about data. Yeah. So, you are nerdy, but really no one knows. You know? Yeah. I'm the only one that sees that. I really love data. I think it's so fascinating to see like what people are responding to. But this episode actually got me thinking of that maybe I'm just doing it all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why do you say that? Because Charlie mentions that there's so much data that happens outside of internal like platforms and that's like paints such a better picture of what your audience wants from you as a brand so he kind of like used an analogy of like driving with one eye closed which hasn't stopped circulating in my mind i feel like you probably do that in real life 
drive with okay. one, one eye closed. Settle. Both eyes open, but <laughs> daydreaming. I don't know. <laughs> going to regret that later. Anyways. Anyways, yeah, I think I want to disagree a little bit, though. I don't think you're doing it all wrong. I think these external insights are just another layer mm-hmm. into this whole mystery of what does our consumer want. Mm-hmm. But a lot of these internal data points that we're collecting tell a big part of the story. Yeah. So I think it, it just kind of made me wonder how much more effective we could be yeah. knowing the bigger picture, yeah. which is kind of what he explains. Which is exciting. Mm-hmm. I'm pumped to kind of get more behind the curtain about what Right Metric does and the data points that they collect and also how they translate more of that qualitative info about our audiences into data points that we can measure. Mm-hmm. That's Definitely. really cool. Yeah, I love how Charlie also has like the background of the creative side, which I think is important, and then also the data side. Mm-hmm. And we kind of talk about what happens when you can merge the two, and that's what really makes like the most effective campaigns. We know that optimization and targeting and like the technical side is important, but we kind of get into it on the show. But what we're really seeing lately winning the day for some of our clients is the creative side mm-hmm. and even like different types of creative on top of good optimization, things like video testimonials from Mm -hmm. customers or even influencers or uh, including reviews in ad creative, things like that, you Mm -hmm. know, like just doing a different type of approach than just your standard carousel ad or Mm -hmm. static image or whatever. Yeah. I also learned a lot about social media side because he's done social media for some pretty big global brands. And he said that Red Bull had a couple thousand contributors with over a hundred million followers. Yeah. Like the way to set that all up just kind of boggles my mind. I know. It just, it hurts a little bit. I don't really want to think about it. It's crazy. Yeah, it kind of makes me grateful that we don't have to really manage at that scale, at least not yet. You know, like we can work our way up to that. But right now, these medium sized brands that we're working with, it's a lot in and of itself. So, yeah, he also talked about some underlier platforms that are outperforming some of the traditional ones that come to mind. And he specifically called out TikTok and LinkedIn. Yeah. I wasn't surprised about LinkedIn, but TikTok was surprising that he was stoked about it. You yeah. know, obviously it has good organic reach right now, but man, I hope he ends up going home and doing some sort of dance video on TikTok or something like that. We'll pop it in the show notes. Yeah. And we, we've been talking about TikTok for a while. I love, love, love watching TikToks. You do love it. So does Elena, our daughter. <laughs> yeah. I just think they're so good and so funny. We actually tried our first TikTok, what was it, a few weeks ago? Yeah, I don't know how you coerced me into that, but (laughs) it did happen. There's two videos. They are on the internet. It's a little embarrassing. Mine is like just a dance and we're just two people over 30 trying to keep up with the kids. But yours is internet gold because it's the flip the switch challenge. So I love Drake. Yeah, I was wearing a really like leopardy. Well, we're going into detail here. And like a leopardy shirt, a scrunchie, and then we get Mike to do to do a little swap. And I really that. had to flip a switch in my brain to pull that one off, but it's it turned good out one. good. And it's true, like it, the content is performing well organically mm-hmm. on there right now. Like I have like fourteen followers or something. That was mm-hmm. the first video I ever posted, but it didn't go viral. But it got like four hundred views, mm-hmm. you know, which is out of proportion to the amount of people following me. So. There's something to be said about what's going on on TikTok. Yeah. Back to the dialogue with Charlie, I think one thing that stuck out to me that I really want our audience to listen for in this interview was just discussion around what else your audiences are interested in. You know, not just the low-hanging fruit for how do we find our target online, whether it's through Facebook ads or even on organic social. But if you're selling a certain type of product, that's not the only thing that they're interested in. They also have a whole lot of other things that they do at home or for fun or with their friends. And there's 
potential for reaching them in these other places with this other kind of fringe targeting. And I think that could be really insightful for some brands or marketers that are listening to rethink how they're approaching their audience or mm-hmm. what, what language they're using, but even more to inform their content strategy. Because mm-hmm. you don't have to just hit them with the blatant like upfront meat and potatoes all the time. Mm-hmm. If you can reach them or relate to them in other ways with other types of content pillars, then that's just going to diversify and, and make your, your brand content less monotonous. Totally. And I think that's really important to know right now during this COVID-19 season, because we just want marketers out there to be more effective with what they are doing because we know that budgets are being cut and we kind of have to re-strategize how we enter the market right now, which isn't a bad thing. So hopefully, you know, what Charlie talks about can help divert that kind of attention a little bit and get marketers to be thinking outside of the box a little yeah, that's what we want to do. Get you thinking outside the box. Yeah, and be more effective with what you're doing. Yeah. So after you listen to this, let us know what you think. Mm-hmm. You know, if this gets your wheels turning or you have questions or if you have crazy ideas, we want to know. Slide into our DMs on Wave Social at Instagram or send us a message, suggest a guest, whatever, whatever you want to do. We're just really curious about where you guys are at, what mm-hmm. you're thinking about, what you're struggling with, and how we can help. Yeah. Should I read a review? Let's do it. Okay, then we can get into it. So we had a review this time from Cousin Drippy. <laughs> Love that Apple ID. Uh, it's a five star. It says so fun. And then it goes into detail saying Mike and Mitzi have a chemistry that makes you want to keep listening. That's what we like to hear. It says they are funny and have a wealth of wisdom. Can you imagine being both funny and having a wealth of wisdom? <laughs> That's, That's you. <laughs> I think I'm the wisdom and about, you're the funny. I don't know about funny. I don't think I'm funny. I think you're sometimes okay, funny. Okay, <laughs> you're, you're wisdom and I'm funny. There you go. That's probably more accurate. Cool. Well, thank you, Cousin Drippy. I really appreciate you. Glad you're listening. And again, for all you other guys, leave us a review. It helps a lot. We appreciate the words and it makes a difference. Yeah, let's get into the interview. It's going to be good. Hold up, before we get into it, I want to tell you about ClearBank. ClearBank provides capital for e-commerce brands who want to grow their business through digital advertising. As agency partners, we get to work with a lot of e-commerce brands that are trying to build their business online. A common obstacle that they come up against is they start with a small budget, they see some exciting early results, but then they don't have the capital available to scale. So that's what ClearBank does so well. You give them access to the back end of your website. They have an algorithm that analyzes the health of your store, and then as quickly as 48 hours, they can give you access to the funds that you need to add to your advertising campaigns. And you don't have to give up any equity. There's also no fixed interest rate, and you don't have to risk your credit score to get access to funds for ads. As a ClearBank agency partner, we get a preferred rate, which we're happy to extend to you, our listeners. So head to wavesocialpodcast.com slash ClearBank, that's C-L-E-A-R-B-A-N-C, to get access to that rate. Charlie, thank you so much for being on the show. We're so pumped to have you. Thank you so much for having me, you guys. I really appreciate being here. Yeah, it's going to be fun. You've had some really interesting roles in your past and even right now. Can you give us a bird's eye view of your career trajectory and how you got to where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a university dropout. I'll start with that first and foremost. Yeah, so, so is Mike, I, actually. Yeah, <laughs> shout, shout out. <laughs> shout out, stick together. Um, to the yeah, so I originally, I grew up in Vancouver and I was a football player actually growing up through high school and I ended up taking a football scholarship to UBC here. And in my first month of school there, I was actually in a really bad car accident with a, a drunk driver. Oh, and wow. so I ended up dropping out of school because I had to have back surgery and that sort of thing. And I had a lot of time to sit on the couch. And at that time I was kind of on the track of 
yeah, I'll go, I'll get a degree, you know, maybe I'll go to law school. Like I think I was interested in poli sci and economics at the time and maybe law school was going to be down the road if I was smart enough. But (laughs) once I dropped out of school, I had a bunch of time to sit on my parents' couch and figure out what I wanted to do. And I'd always had actually an interest in video production. Growing up, friends of mine were in video production classes in high school and they were, you know, shooting skateboarding videos and that sort of thing. And I was interested in action sports. So As soon as I was on the couch, I ended up buying like a little camera from I think it was Future Shop at the time and started watching tutorials online on how to film things and edit things. And that just kind of snowballed into a career in video production. So I ended up doing that for I think almost five years. And while I was working in video production, that's kind of when social media and the internet started to become a thing. You know, this is like 2010 Mm -hmm. to 2011, 2012, around that time. And I was just fascinated by that, like how social kind of just exploded and there was this whole new world, so to speak. And so I really wanted to get involved in that. And so while I was creating all these different videos, I started to notice a pattern in that my videos were just getting put online. And so it wasn't, <laughs> hey, you're going to make this and it goes to a DVD or or it goes to a theater. It's like, yeah, this is going on YouTube or this is going on Facebook or Vimeo or whatever it was. And so I was like, huh, I need to know more about the distribution side of this stuff. And so, yeah, that's kind of what spurred that. I ended up actually taking an online certificate course through Hootsuite and Syracuse University about social media and social media strategy. I did some online courses through UBC and the Digital Analytics Association. And then I also did a three-month certificate program with Simon Fraser University in digital communications. And so that was more so just like ticking the box being like, yeah, I have some schooling about this stuff because, you know, you can't mm-hmm. go get a, a bachelor of internet <laughs> or a bachelor <laughs> right. of digital. Of YouTube. I wish. Exactly. Right. And so, so yeah, I was like, what were the courses that exist, right? There wasn't the brain station or, or that those sorts of like digital skills centers. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I was kind of looking for like the more traditional thing that I could just kind of throw onto my resume because I was self-conscious that I didn't have a degree. And so, uh, yeah, then that kind of, as I was working in video, And I had kind of done that schooling around digital. I started talking to people and I actually ended up landing at an agency here in Vancouver called Invoke. And that's, Mm -hmm. um, it was founded by Ryan Holmes, Dario Melli and David Tedman. That's where Hootsuite came from. So I went there. I was there for only a handful. I was there for like six months. And then Red Bull ended up calling me and I ended up moving to Toronto to work on the digital marketing team there. Ended up doing five years at Red Bull, three and a half years in Toronto, almost a year in Austria at the global headquarters. Then I moved from there to Aritzia to lead social, and now I run my right metric. What was it like getting that first call from Red Bull? Like, was that a brand that you always aspired to work at, or was it just like, whoa, this opportunity came out of nowhere, I'm going to try it? Yeah, so I had been doing film work for Red Bull, and so that's kind of how I knew them. And I had always kind of been expressing interest to the people that I was working with there, you know, the marketing folks who I was making videos for. Oh, and I was kind of talking to them and nerding out, so to speak, about that, about learning more about that. And yeah, I just kind of got this random call one day and they were like, hey, we have a spot. You have this video skill. You also understand digital. We'd love to kind of add you to the team. And so it was definitely a brand that I looked up to and and still do to this day. Mm -hmm. I would argue that they were one of the companies that really brought content marketing to kind of the forefront of Mm -hmm. how to do it. Like I can't tell you how many times there's probably been presentations of like, and the world leader, the thought leader in this space, Red Bull, because they did this, this, and this. So for me to be able to join that company, I learned so much. And I think that's a big part of who I am as a strategic thinker now and a marketer is I was just able to work with so many smart people 
and be the dumbest guy in the room and just nice. kind of soak it up. And I really, really owe a lot of what I've been able to go on to do because of my time there, because it taught me a different way to think. It taught me, you know, I was able to meet so many great people and work with them after that. Such a great strategy. I'm really curious because I feel like in a way you're kind of both sides of the brain, like you're a creative, you started out in video, but then you're also a data guy, you know, mm-hmm. obviously right metric is built all around data. Yeah. What's that like? And do you think your aptitude on both those sides helps you be a better marketer and leader or, or like which ones of those play more into marketing or leadership? Yeah. So I would say absolutely. It has benefited me. I think about that word creative. And I said this even when I was making videos, my girlfriend is a designer and I have friends who are incredible illustrators and I have friends who are incredible photographers. When I was actually like doing the, and I'm using air quotes here, the creative side of things with a camera, I was more interested in the settings. So it was like, what frame rate am I shooting? What codec, like that sort of thing. (laughs) So the data side. Almost like the data side. Like I just wanted to know what were the inputs that I could get to create the output that I wanted. So if I wanted something to look a certain way, this was like the camera settings that I needed to know, or this is the way I needed to edit it. But like, I am definitely not like you would puke if you saw my handwriting. I do not view myself (laughs) as as a creative person. But I think what was really interesting, this is just pure dumb luck, was as I had this skill to know how to use a camera and edit stuff and do very, very basic motion graphics, as soon as social media kind of started to rise, video was right there. So there were a lot Mm. of social media managers who were seeing how well video was doing on all the platforms and they don't have a background in video production. And so, whereas with me, like I had Adobe Premiere on my computer, I had a DSLR that I could rip out with, go shoot something myself, edit it myself, and then chop it up and put it out. And so... That was, I think, something that really benefited me throughout my career and still has being able to kind of play translator between the different camps, Mm -hmm. being able to speak that production language as well as speak that distribution language. So yeah, it's it's interesting having both those backgrounds. I think it definitely has benefited me. And and I think when you combine two skills like that, that's what allows you to stand out. And I think that I was just lucky that those two skills (laughs) happened to align with where the world or the internet was going at that period of time. Yeah. So in layman's terms, can you explain what right metric does for marketers and what's the problem that you're trying to solve? Yeah, absolutely. So the way that I can explain it best is we're a digital market research firm. So what that means is we provide audience and competitive insights to brands. So our goal is to empower marketers to make better informed decisions Mm -hmm. by providing them with a holistic understanding of everything that's happening outside of their four walls. And so diving in a bit deeper to that, When I sat on the brand side, I had access to a ton of internal data, right? So I could see what our performance was on our website. I could see how our social was performing. But I felt that I didn't have a clear picture of everything kind of outside. And what we noticed was the problem with how you understand, you know, everything outside of your four walls is it's expensive, it's slow, it's manual, it's fragmented. Like there are so many different drawbacks with it. And so what we were set out to do is can we solve this by pulling in a bunch of different data sources about an audience into one place and then just organize it into essentially cheat sheets for marketers so that they can just stay informed with everything they need to know happening outside of their four walls so that they can continue to refine their strategy. And so it's really like right now, if you're only looking at your da- the data inside your organization, it's like you have one eye covered. And mm-hmm. by working with us, you're able to kind of uncover that second eye and have a holistic view of what's actually happening outside of your organization related to the audience or the customer that you're trying to reach. 
Man, this is so intriguing, especially for us, I think, from the agency side. And Mm -hmm. I think for my own selfish curiosity, I just want to know, obviously, I'm assuming this is positioned more towards brands. Yeah. But is there a different type of portal for agencies where you can see like multiple clients and kind of manage it all from this one hub? Yeah. So, so not yet (laughs) is the short answer. Make it for me, dude. Uh, Make it for me. Okay. Yes. I'll get right to work on that. Sorry. (laughs) Thanks, man. Um, Yeah. So it's definitely like we've seen a lot of of appetite there. I think for us, we're a two-year-old company. And so we wanted to really go out and see essentially validate the market and uh, and spend two years working with people to understand what are the challenges that marketers are facing. And once we started to service enough customers, we realized that this was something that was occurring over and over again. And once people saw, had that holistic view, they felt more empowered and, and more confident in the decisions that they were making and the strategies that they were building. So I feel like that's kind of where we're at currently. I would love to, at some point, turn it into something that agencies could use I'm not a developer, so I don't know what that looks like. Maybe there's a way to do it with no code. Who knows? But I think, yeah, in terms of we have worked in the past with other agencies, like we do collaborate. And I think that for us, from our side of things, we've actually been asked a lot to do execution work. So we'll go away and we'll, you know, we'll look at them, provide all that insight. And then they go, great. Can you activate this and do this for us? And for us, we think it's important for us to remain that unbiased third party. So Mm -hmm. like we don't have skin in the game. We're just going to tell you what we're seeing out there. And then from that, depending on what we think that you need, based on what we're seeing from the data and from the behaviors, we can then go, okay, yeah, if you're looking for this and this is the way you want to go, go talk to this agency and that sort of thing. So we do do that a lot. But Mm. yeah, I think that there is something there in the future for agencies. It's just we're a small six-person team. (laughs) So there's only so many hours. I feel that, man. Yeah, Yeah, we're a six-person team too. And I even noticed that you said you turned two years in March. Our yeah. company actually turned two years in April. So there we go. Um, yeah, we've got <laughs> a, twins. Got a twins. lot in common here. <laughs> yeah, <It's awesome>. absolutely. <laughs> I love what you said about having a cheat sheet. And I think every marketer who's listening right now is like, zing, I want a cheat sheet, you know? <laughs> yeah. What is the potential that a brand has when they know that they have the right data and they can translate it into the right strategy to reach their audience? Mm-hmm. So really good question. And I think... It's taken us two years to essentially articulate this. And it was funny because we actually came up with the name, my co-founder Evan and I, when we came up with this, we chose the name Right Metric. We were like, yeah, Right Metric. And then like, it took us a while to figure out like what Right Metric was going to become. And then where we actually landed, we were like, oh yeah, that name actually makes a lot of sense. Like, <laughs> So in terms of what the potential is for brands, I think the way that I think about it at like the very macro high level is over the last decade, we've witnessed a transformation in how companies just use data in general. And that's Mm -hmm. outside of marketing, but also obviously within marketing to help them drive business decisions. So whether it's sales and marketing CRMs, data collection and storage, like Google Trends, like there's no shortage of tools that have empowered professionals and in our case, marketers to be able to act on data about a company and its products. Mm -hmm. But what we've found is that internal data is only half of that picture. And we think that there's a massive opportunities for brands to be able to utilize this data-driven insight from external sources, which will help them reach a larger audience, which in turn should help them outmaneuver competitors. So in terms of the potential, I just look at it as like, you're driving with one eye covered, uncover the Mm -hmm. other eye and you'll probably be a better driver or a safer driver or a faster driver, however you want to kind of continue that metaphor. We just think that there's so much potential there because you're just getting more information and you have more context so that you can be feeling more confident with what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Can you give us an example of what an external data point would be? Because I think, I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm even thinking about 
our brands that we represent and what kind of data we're reporting on for them. And yeah, you're right. So much of it is all internal. So I need to like retrain my brain to even (laughs) consider, you know, the external. What what is that even? Yeah. So let's use a content example because I think that'll be one that'll that can help kind of illustrate this in the easiest way. So Let's say you're a brand who is trying to reach people who are interested in yoga. So Mm -hmm. what we're able to do is we're able to go out and cast a net essentially and pull in all of the content that is related to yoga. So whether that's videos on Facebook, you know, YouTube, whatever, all the different platforms, we pull all of that content that is being enjoyed by people who are interested in yoga. We pull that into one place. And then what we do is we look at all that content and we establish a benchmark. So we draw a line through it. And so that's where you would look at average video views, average engagement rate, all those different average watch time, all those different metrics that you would look at. We draw a line through that. We establish, okay, what is the average? Anything below that average, we toss out. We don't really care. Anything above average, our team of analysts then start to cluster together and we start to see themes. Oh, okay. These types of videos tend to perform well. These types of photos tend to perform well. And then what we're able to do is we put that into a cheat sheet that gets sent to a marketer each month. So when we say, hey, these are the four types of content that we're seeing is resonating with this audience, what we've been able to do is go out and look at the entire audience, see what else they're watching, back it up by performance data, and then serve it up to them in a bite-sized way to be like, hey, you could think about jumping on this train and creating content like this, or this could help your creative brainstorming session or something like that. Hmm. So that's like one example of of content. Another thing could be looking at the ads that other brands are running and how much they're spending and looking at that over time. So, okay, you know, this brand has been running this one ad for the last eight months and they've been spending this amount and they've been generating this amount of traffic and this amount of impressions. One of two things is either happening. It's either working or they're asleep at the wheel. (laughs) And so that's a great way where you can start to look over the fence, so to speak, and not necessarily copy them, but just get an understanding of what's working and what's not. And are there little things that you could pull into your strategy that you could deploy that might allow you to make some extra sales, reach some more people, whatever the overarching objective is? That's super interesting. You got my wheels (laughs) turning here and I've got like many questions. But one thing that I was curious about before we got into this question that kind of ties in is I'm hearing some really interesting data points externally that we're pulling in. But are you able to pull in any like more qualitative elements from outside and turn that Mm -hmm. into data? Kind of like what types of positive responses are you getting or what what do people have to say about you or I don't know. Absolutely. Rough examples. Yeah. So basically what we do is we actually start with quantitative and then our analysts do the qualitative on top of it. So the example that I gave about content of pulling in all those different pieces, that's the quantitative stuff where we pull it in. The qualitative is where our analysts are looking as humans and going, okay, these are some of the patterns that I'm starting to see. And these are the specific trends that we're seeing that a human is able to see and a computer isn't able to see yet. We actually have an article about this on our blog that talks about how we break it down. I would point the listeners to go check that out because it's a long post that my co-founder has written that explains just this specific thing. In terms of, yeah, the qualitative stuff, Yes, you can. Absolutely. We have social listening tools and that sort of thing. And that's actually how we operate. So in terms of like how the sausage is made, so to speak, we work with over 30 different data tools and and partners. And where we sit on in is we pull all that into one place to be able to do all the aggregation Mm. and the analysis and, you know, finding the insights and then packaging that up. So it's not actually us with our own software doing it. It's our team of analysts using our strategic frameworks, using the best in class digital intelligence tools, if that makes sense. 
Yeah. And I love that you're saying or you're making sure people know that it's a human doing it. That it's not just like yep. AI or just like yeah, computer software. Because mm-hmm. I think coming from like an analyst lens and like an actual person who's like evaluating comments and stuff like that, I think that's really important. And we can make sure that we link the blog post in the show notes for this episode. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Yeah. And I think the one thing I would just add on to that is I'm a big believer. Yes, you referred to me as a, as a data guy, but also a creative. I think that I'm a big believer in that the best marketing is art and science right? Like it's a, it's a cool. balance between art and science. And so mm. when an analyst is sitting there looking at stuff, that might not seem that artsy, but the insight that you can generate from the data, which would be the more science thing, can be very artsy and can really help drive creativity and guide creativity. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's important to to point that out because I think a lot of people are like, you're just a, you're like a data or die kind of guy. And that's just definitely <laughs> not, not who I am mm-hmm. or how I roll. I do see the value in having both of those things. And it's it's really around this idea of informing intuition. Yeah, definitely. I think we've kind of been observing that too, where especially on the paid social and advertising side, I think it kind of went away from creative first to more so being just about analytics and optimization and like targeting Mm -hmm. strategies. But I think we're seeing a return to creative being the game changer mm-hmm. and not to say that it's only creative but now that we're all good at optimizing you know <laughs> or now that we've figured out some targeting that works it's the creative that really separates the brands that win from the ones that don't and uh, i think the way you articulated it is even better than that in mm-hmm. the sense that you have to find that nice balance between the two or else you're always going to kind of be spinning your tires yeah, yeah that's where the magic happens yeah i completely agree and i think that this idea of I almost feel like data has also kind of made marketers scared to fail. Hmm. So because some people become so reliant on like, it needs to have this ROAS or it needs to have, you know, we need to generate this specific number. Yeah. It's almost like I feel, and I don't necessarily have proof of this, but I think that it feels as if some people are hesitant now because they're like, oh, if I can't exactly track it, maybe Mm -hmm. I don't do it. And I think where I'm coming from is, yes, you know, you can get into those things where it's like X equals 10 and that's the stuff that you can look at. But I also think that there's a way that data can help be directional. And I think that's with where we play is I'm not going to tell you X equals 10, but what I'm going to tell you is based on the group of people that you're trying to reach, here's what we've seen at scale, how they behave. We've seen this over a sustained period of time. Take with it and do what you will. But if you're going to be brainstorming some creative ideas on how to reach this group of people, here's some data-backed proof of how they behave. I love it. Another question that just is popping into my head from all Mm -hmm. this is uh, specific to some, again, of our context with our clients, we've been trying to think about not just like the low-hanging fruit or blatant way to target an audience, but like what are their fringe interests and how can we find them in those places? And often potentially because they're smaller groups, that way, then it, it could also end up being cheaper to find them there. Totally. Can you, through right metric, can you tell us about what our audience is interested in other than like the meat and potatoes? Like what are their fringe interests or where are these other places that we can find them? That's literally exactly what we do. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> Money. <yeah>. <laughs> Sold. <laughs> so that, that's exactly what we do. Basically, the way that we look at an audience is, and I'm using air quotes here, we look at an audience. So I'll use yoga again. So let's say we're trying to look at a yoga audience. The way that we look at that yoga audience is through, and I'm using air quotes, related entities. So that would be other websites they go to, other brands they engage with, you know, forums that they chat on, all these different things. And what we're starting to see is, okay, 
where are they spending their attention outside of yoga? Because just because someone's interested in yoga doesn't mean that they're thinking yoga 24-7, right? Like exactly. you only have yeah. there's 24 hours in the day. What else are they interested in? And mm-hmm. so that's what's really powerful, I think, with what we do is we can show you, okay, yeah, here's the other things that they spend time doing. And that can be really interesting for creative brainstorming, whether it's what content to create. Is there an event yeah. that we could run? Is there co-marketing? Like it actually does go outside the world of digital once you start to apply it in different ways. So yes, absolutely. And we think about that a lot is, yeah, this person is interested in yoga, but they're also really interested in this other thing. And oh, by the way, that other thing would be really easy for you to tap into as a brand. Hmm. So cool. Yeah. You might get a direct phone call after this. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We're going to switch over to content for a second. And we've heard it said that content is king. Do you agree with this statement? No, I disagree. Sure. Tell us why. I, and, but like, boom, <laughs> mic, mic smack or mic drop. Yeah. I actually disagree with that statement. And I have a bunch on this. So there's definitely two camps here, right? There's the content side of people and then there's the distribution side of thing. I mm-hmm. think I see both sides. And I think that it is something that now over the past, you know, I feel like when that statement happened, when that statement was first said, you know, what, five, six, seven years ago, I don't know the exact date, but I feel like that was kind of the thing back in 2015 is like content is king. That's mm-hmm. what you would see at like the marketing conferences. Yeah. And, and now I think over the past five years, we've seen it swing to distribution. So let me give you an example. And so I think the first thing to acknowledge is like, there's no shortage of content, but distribution is why things get big. And so I think I saw some stat where it was like, something stupid, like a hundred million photos are shared on Instagram each day or 300 hours of video are uploaded to YouTube every minute. Like we're witnessing a content explosion. And actually I read a book about this. There's a book called Hit Makers by this guy named Derek Thompson. And he's a writer for the Atlantic. And basically the book is about the science behind why thing gets popular. And so one of the things that he kind of calls out in the book is he's like, when we go back in time, we look at the most successful songs or shows or films, and he kind of looks at everything a lot of them failed over and over again until they found distribution. And so with that principle, he used an example in the book. I actually went and found another example of this. And it was actually the film, The Shawshank Redemption. Are you guys familiar with that? Oh, big time. (laughs) Okay. So The (laughs) Shawshank Redemption, like when it was released in 1994, it got a really positive acclaim. I think, you know, like the critics were like, oh, this is amazing. It got an Oscar nomination. And I looked into how much it cost to produce. It cost 25 million bucks to produce but it actually only made 16 million at the box office. And so Hmm. last time I checked, when you make a movie, you want to make money. So losing 9 million bucks is probably not ideal. What was interesting was that distribution actually saved the day for this film. So after doing a bit more research, in 1995, Warner Brothers released it on VHS and it became one of the top video rentals. A couple of years after that, TNT bought the distribution rights and it aired it through TV movies and that sort of thing. And then in 2018, this is from a presentation that I did a while ago. In 2018, it was listed on the American Film Institute's best 100 movies of the past 100 years and the number one film on IMDb's top 250 list. So where I'm going with this, though, The Shawshank Redemption was the same film when it was released in theaters to when it went mainstream as a TV movie. And the difference is distribution, Mm -hmm. right? So in my opinion, content isn't king. Content with the right distribution is king. And so I think by focusing on distribution first, marketers are focused or forced to consider the behaviors of an audience that they're trying to reach and aren't just able to make art projects. Right. And I know that probably sounds like a very bold thing, but if the content was the same content, it hadn't changed, but it only caught on when it had the right distribution and that's when it went big. The distribution is the key point. You can have a great piece of content, but without getting it in front of anybody, nobody's going to care. 
So mm-hmm. that's where I stand on, on, on that side of the fence. I don't know if you guys agree or disagree with me, but it, it's definitely a hot, interesting topic that comes up a lot. We're all about hot takes here. So thanks for laying it down. <laughs> Speaking of distribution, then can you talk about like, what's your preferred distribution channel right now? Or uh, anyone specifically that you feel is outperforming the other options out there? Yeah. So if I was going to say two platforms jump out to me, one is LinkedIn and I think the other is TikTok. And so... Whoa, interesting. <laughs> definitely like two ends of the spectrum there, right? So maybe I'll speak about the TikTok one first. I am not on TikTok. I have a bunch of friends who have started <laughs> to get on TikTok and make make silly videos while we're all living uh, inside here. <laughs> and so that's been pretty funny to watch. I think both of these platforms, what they have in common is they're both able to get a disproportionate amount of views and reach. And so with how content is discovered on TikTok... You can have people who have like, you know, 50 followers and generate millions of views because they have a video that pops, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the same thing actually is on LinkedIn and I can give my own example. So maybe you guys have inspired me. Maybe I'll make some TikTok dance videos after this. Just kidding. Yeah. Nobody, nobody wants to see that. <laughs> but my LinkedIn example. So I have 3,800 followers on LinkedIn. I'm not like a LinkedIn influencer by any means. But a month ago was our two-year company anniversary and I posted a photo of my co-founder Evan and I. And that post ended up doing 25,000 views. Whoa. And so 3,800 followers, 25,000 views. I don't really know another platform other than TikTok where that could happen. And definitely so, not on Instagram. <laughs> no, definitely not on Instagram, even Facebook, right? Snapchat, like, I don't know. So I think those two platforms are something that are interesting, are very interesting for me because of that disproportionate amount of input versus output. And so... Obviously, those have to be linked back to your business and the type of objectives you're going for. Me running a business, LinkedIn makes sense. TikTok, nobody wants to see my dance moves, so that doesn't make sense. I don't Um, know, man. You don't know until you try. (laughs) But Do you have a favorite TikTok sound that you would go with first for a dance? Oh, no. I don't know. I don't know if I have a TikTok. I think the big one right now is the Drake slide. Is that what everybody's doing? The 2C uh, slide? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't actually had time to, to dive down that rabbit hole, but since it's a long weekend now, maybe I will. There you go. We're expecting it now, man. <laughs> Make sure you send it to us. We'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> no, we won't do that to Uh-oh. you. <laughs> Bringing it back to uh, marketing from all this TikTok fun, uh, you had mentioned that we're all at home right now, you know, and creating things and having opportunities to experiment. And so I just want to kind of press into that. Given the crisis that is obviously causing this, you know, work from home and self-isolation, I think there's a lot of uncertainty in our industry. That's clear. Budgets are being cut. And uh, sadly, some companies aren't going to survive. None of us really know what's going to happen or if it'll ever get back to normal. So can you just comment on how marketers could or should be marketing during these uncertain times? Yeah. So I think there's a handful of things here. I think that the first one is pausing. And I think mm-hmm. that when something like this happens, you have to hit pause just to kind of catch your breath, make sure that there aren't things that are going out the door that are already pre-scheduled or that sort of thing. Pausing and I think reading the room are the two things that you would do first. I haven't really actually seen many examples of a brand kind of screwing that up. So I think that's good news. <laughs> if you guys have examples, I'd love to hear it because I always love seeing marketing fails. It's a guilty pleasure of mine. In terms of what to do next, I think if there are cuts that need to be made, you should be taking a really deep look at that and understanding don't just cut everything. 
And I think be strategic with how you're cutting. I think that a lot of people's first instinct is probably to go to the revenue generating channels. And I think that instinct is correct, but it's also important to balance that with not eroding some of the brand and community efforts that you're invested in, right? And so it's this mix between brand and performance. And so there isn't a number. I can't say it's like a 50-50 balance or a Mm 60-40 balance. I think because there are so many other factors depending on where the business is in terms of financial side of things, what industry, what product they sell, all those different things. But I think what I would say is the best marketers have that balance of art and science, but they also have that balance of brand and performance. And that's Mm kind of what makes great businesses. So when you're sitting down looking at what you're going to cut, keep that in mind. Don't just sway to one end, keep that balance. So that's one of the things that I would say. The other thing that I would say is it's never been more important to listen. And I think that that might sound like a cop-out answer, but there's so much that can be uncovered by listening to audiences and consumers. I think one of the problems that's being exposed here is that a lot of brands haven't invested in building the infrastructure that enables them to understand how their audiences or customers or consumers are feeling. And so there's a Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett quote, right? And it's like, only when the tide goes out, do you see who's been swimming naked? And (laughs) I think that's happening in some businesses right now. But I think also for marketers, if they don't have the infrastructure in place to be able to understand what's actually happening with their existing customers or within the market or the industry that they're in, that's really tough, right? And they're Mm going to have to play catch up to be able to, to deeply understand that because right now it is such a touchy, sensitive time. You have to be considerate and empathetic towards different people who are going through different things. And the only way you're going to be able to navigate that is if you have a map. But if you don't have a map and you're not able to kind of look before you leap, you run the risk of making a mistake. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of how I would approach it and recommend brands to approach it. And I think the only final thing that I would add to that is it's never been more important to focus. And I think that Mm -hmm. as we continue to move forward from here, I feel that marketing as a function of business is going to go under the microscope more so than ever before. And Mm -hmm. so it's really, really important for marketers to learn more about the business side of how their function plays into an organization, because Mm -hmm. that'll suit them to be able to go under that microscope and defend the value that their function and their part of the organization is bringing to the organization as a whole. Yeah, that's great advice. So reports are showing that social media and website traffic is up, but it doesn't necessarily mean that people are in the mood or even have the resources to buy. How can brands and marketers be strategic about the attention that they do get? And should they focus on like selling? Like, what do you recommend? And what kind of data are you seeing? There's the macro trends that have been widely reported on, right? Internet usage is up as a whole. Entertainment is booming. Video chats are booming. Travel and tourism sites are down, right? Like, I think everybody, mm-hmm. those are publicly available things that have been, have right. been widely reported on. I think sometimes I would go back to what I said about pausing. Sometimes the best thing a brand can do is be quiet. And I think that a lot of people go, oh, I'm a marketer. Like, we need to show that we're busy and we're doing things. And sometimes not talking says a lot. And I think that there are people that do that in life, right? Sometimes the silence is is the answer. And so, again, I think it, it depends on the specifics of it. But yeah, without going into down a rabbit hole of different specifics, that's what I would say about that. In terms of one of the things that I wanted to ask you guys, actually, are you guys on House Party yet? Oh, yeah. 
Mitzi's been going ham on there. I, I downloaded it and then I got annoyed with how many notifications I was getting. <laughs> and so I've just kind of avoided it. I'm so a house far. party crasher. Yeah. I have a friend Same. that's in. I feel like everybody a, is. It's so fun. And like, I feel like people want you to crash their house party because if they didn't, yeah. they would lock it. Yeah, for sure. So, and I think. Fair game. So we were actually looking at some data around this. I think about a month and a half ago, I think one of the stats I saw, they had 77,000 users on it. And then I think last weekend they had 55 million users just on Android alone. Wow. And so like they've had some, and I know that like two Fridays ago, I was trying to pull a Mitzi and go and crash (laughs) a bunch of house parties and the app actually went down for like two or three hours. Whoa. Because they had so many it's people probably on probably because I was doing the same thing. <laughs> you, you, me, and everybody else yeah, in the world. Totally. But I think what has been so interesting with that is it's such a simple thing, right? Like that functionality exists everywhere else. But what I was so fascinated by when I got on, and I agree with what Mike said about the notifications just kill me. But what was so interesting was how you can start crashing different house parties if you're only friends with one person. That as a network effect fascinates me. Hmm. where you can be friends with one person and that person's in a room with six other people and then I can just join in and then, oh, I just touch their face to like add them as a friend. And that like compounding network effect is something that has just been the internet nerd in me is fascinated by that network effect. And I I wonder how the big dogs, i.e. Facebook, Snapchat, whoever are going to take that and build that into their product. Yeah, it kind of has virality like built into it. Yeah, I love it. That's really interesting. (laughs) I'm addicted. (laughs) Nice. I haven't even thought about it really, but I mean... You're intriguing me. I'm, I'm interested in maybe just going on and finding some new people. Yeah. <laughs> but, just, and just, just testing randomly. that theory, you know, like yeah. really putting that networking to work. But maybe you can add it to your list with LinkedIn and TikTok if, if, it's, if it's that easy <laughs> yeah, to just, find new people. I, I don't know. Maybe I should just always have an unlocked room and just get just have people surprise and delight me. Yeah. yeah. And then just like get them into your funnel and sell them something. <laughs> there you go. Hit me on house party. Those listening. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> nice. I kind of want to bring it back to video because I had more questions about that. So hopefully it's okay if we circle back more towards what we were talking about at the beginning. But I want to get some value from the work you did around Arcteryx and, you know, even NBC Sports and Nike and your time at Red Bull. But I'm curious because obviously Right Metric kind of tells you or the brand's using it, like what content is performing well. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us some of the the data or the learnings you're getting about video, whether it was from when you were producing it yourself or from what you're seeing behind the curtain at, at Right Metric? Mm-hmm. What type so, of video performs well? Yeah, so the type of video that I was creating varied depending on the brand. So I'm an action sports guy, so there was a lot of action sports videos, but there was campaign launch stuff, there was teasers for shows or films, like there was all types. I think every industry or audience that you're trying to reach is different. But some of the things that I think I've learned, and this was more, I thought as a filmmaker, it was important to learn how people were using the platforms, right? So if my video is going to end up in a news feed, how am I creating that video so that someone in that news feed who loves scrolling is going to stop and watch it? And so there's a couple things I can point out here. So the first one is the first three seconds of a video is so critical, <laughs> And if you're going to have any chance of stopping someone's thumb from scrolling through, those first three seconds are so important. It's the first thing that people see. And so I think that as a video producer was a really interesting learning. And that's something that I, sitting on the marketing side, was constantly trying to communicate to the video producers where they would typically have a slow establishing shot. And then it would go into, you know, and they would do like typical film school, like story arcs, right? Whereas... 
now when you're dealing with someone who's scrolling a million miles a minute, you need something that's instantly going to catch their eye and pull them in. And so first three seconds is, is super, super important. I think what we were seeing was that sound was optional depending on the platform. I think that's coming back now with the rise of different headphones. So whether it's with AirPods or whatever, wireless, that sort of thing, I think a lot of people are spending more times with headphones in. So Hmm. having sound on is something that people are more and more doing on the go. That said, I think subtitles are a really great way to kind of tell deeper stories in a silent environment, right? And so one of the examples that I always give was I watched a video, it must have been three, four, five years ago. It was a Facebook video. And I think it was by CNN or somebody. And basically what they did was they took photos of old Navy ships and warships and then did the Ken Burns effect, like the pan and scan. And then Mm -hmm. over the bottom, they put this, like just a fun fact about them. And I kind of saw this video and I kept seeing it over and over my feed. And finally I watched it and it had something silly, like 50 million views. And I was like, this video actually sucks in terms of production value. (laughs) But I watched the whole thing. It pulled me in. And so I was like, oh, what did they do here? Okay. They used photos. The first photo was like a really, they color corrected the photo to be really bright, brilliant. It pulled people in. It had a really interesting stat. And so, yeah, I thought that was like using subtitles to tell a more complex story in a shorter way and Mm -hmm. silently was really interesting. I think also optimizing videos for platforms. So the rise of vertical video. I actually remember there was a time when I was working at Red Bull. My last project at Red Bull, actually, I was in Madrid, Spain at this thing called Red Bull X Fighters, which is where they have a big bull ring and they set up a motocross track, freestyle motocross track, and they do backflips and all those different tricks. And so I ended up taking a camera with me and I took this big fancy camera and I actually held it vertically. And I was literally like people were literally taking photos of me because they're like, look at this goof who doesn't understand how to hold his camera properly. But the joke was on them because like we were shooting for our Instagram stuff and our Instagram account was bigger than the TV crews that were going to like output something there. And I always thought that was so interesting was like we are shooting specifically for the distribution channel. We're not cutting it in post. And yeah, that was something that I thought was really, really interesting is optimizing for the platforms. And I think the last one that I'll say here is this concept of unpolished authenticity. And so Mm. what I mean by that is, you know, when you used to watch the news five, six, seven years ago, you would never see an iPhone video on the news or like a Skype video on the news. Whereas now it's become more socially acceptable. Like they're like, oh, we got this clip from a body cam of a police officer or someone who was in the storm with their iPhone and they like put it up on screen. And I think we're starting to see that. Well, we have started to see that. And now it's normal is it doesn't matter about the quality necessarily in many aspects. It matters what's actually on the screen and and what's more real and authentic. And that word authentic like kind of makes me want to puke because I feel like marketers have ruined it. But Mm -hmm. it's a way that (laughs) describes like it can be like Blair Witch Project's style if what's happening is actually interesting. So, right. Yeah. You talked a little bit about your time at Red Bull and I want to dial in on that for a few minutes too. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about major lessons you learned during that time? Obviously, you would have been at the beginning, you mentioned just being kind of the dumbest guy in the room and learning <laughs> so much and just taking a lot in. Obviously, you weren't dumb, but you were just around a lot of really bright people. So, yeah. share some of that wealth of knowledge with us in a few minutes. Yeah. So, man, it was a blur and I, I was so lucky to work there. I think that what was so unique to me is when I was at the global headquarters in Austria, how big was our team? Our team was like 25 or 30 people there on the social team. So that says one thing right there in terms of the size. But what yeah. was so cool was that we had, I think we had 10 or 15 different nationalities on the team. And so mm. 
I joked and called us the UN <laughs> because <laughs> you had people like the office that I sat in. There was an Italian guy who sat beside me. There was a guy from Malaysia who sat across from me. And there was a guy from Spain who sat kitty corner. It was kind of like a pod of four. And I'm like, what other company would that happen in? And then on top of that, you know, we could sit down as a group. There might be a group of 10 of us sitting down to look at a video or look at something to do with social. And me, the Canadian guy, has a different opinion than a guy from Brazil or a woman from Australia or a woman from Poland. And so that I think was so unique was being able to, how are things interpreted through an international lens? That was Mm -hmm. like so fascinating for me because born and raised in North America, in Canada. And so that was something that I took away and it gave me, I think, a, a wider perspective. So that would be the first thing. The second thing was how social works at scale. And so what I mean by that. Back then, I left the company in 2017, we had 400, around 400 social media accounts with 100 million followers across all those accounts. And at the time, we had close to 1,000 people, employees or freelancers who could publish on behalf of Red Bull in some way, shape or form. And just seeing how that machine works in terms of like setting up the social management tool, setting up different rules and permissions, how the reporting was set up, just understanding how that beast operates taught me so many lessons about how to structure teams, how you should be looking at things, all these different things. Like there's, there's just so many of them. And so I think that that's something that I took away and it's helped me with right metric. It helped me in other roles. So yeah, I think those are really the two things. It's that global perspective and working at scale. Now, while scale isn't necessarily, that's not necessarily applicable to most businesses, having 400 mm-hmm. social accounts with 100 million followers. I think it's just how are you setting up that governance and organization so that you can be effective in your efforts, make sure that things are able to happen quickly. And I think that that organization is a big part of that. Just sitting on the global perspective part quickly, mm-hmm. can you talk about how that perspective affects how you actually execute on social, like mm-hmm. practically? Yeah. So I think for me, what that really taught me was how wrong I am all the time. <laughs> and, Interesting. And I think what I mean by that is just because this is my perspective or my interpretation definitely doesn't mean it's right. And I think that that's what was always so fascinating was seeing other people's reactions to the same thing that I was looking at. And that's a really great way. Once you start to see that and kind of lean into that, you start to be able to put other people first. And so I think that from a marketing perspective, like a lot of people always go, well, what do you think we should do? And my thing always right back to them is, what is your audience doing? What do your customers think about that? It doesn't matter what Charlie thinks about that, unless Charlie's your customer, but maybe I'm not. And so I always kind of flip it back to be like, what do the people think? And so I think that understanding and and looking through other people's perspectives at something similar is something that I took away from that. Amazing. I do want to ask you because you've Red Bull and Aritzia are kind of like two total polar opposites mm-hmm. in terms of like, you know, even targeting and type of content. Besides them being completely different industries, can you tell me about in terms of practices for social media? What was the main difference between how you manage that? So number one, I think objectives are fundamentally different. So that was a big thing for me, just understanding what are the business objectives that we're trying to optimize for. The second thing I would say is just because a tactic or a strategy works in one industry does not mean it works in another industry. So what I mean by that is when I was at Red Bull, video was crushing it for us. But whenever we did video at Aritzia, it didn't seem to perform as well. 
we also saw things, you know, like certain types of posts, like, you know, I would never do a link post at Red Bull, like a, a link post on Facebook at Red Bull, whereas a link post on Facebook at Aritzia at the time seemed to do pretty well. And so that kind of surprised me. I think that it was it was interesting because you have your own internal version of like a cheat sheet, like, oh, this is what you do on this platform. This is the best practice yeah. for this platform. And then you go into something that's completely opposite or a different industry and you realize how you have to start again. And so I think, again, that goes back to the importance of listening, looking, understanding your customer or your, the audience that you're trying to reach and then building it out from there. Love that observation, man. I think the idea of not just getting into autopilot with what works on what platform is really mm -hmm. cool and important for people to hear. And on that note, could you give a, f a few tips for brand managers around effectively using organic social and maybe like to be more specific, like what are some practices that need to die on social media <laughs> and what are some things that marketers should double down on? Yeah. So I think the, the one thing that I would point out here is that I think when social media first started, it was a piece of marketing and now it's across the entire organization. So it's used for sales. It's obviously used for marketing. It's used for customer care, customer service. It's used for HR, whether it's recruiting or employee advocacy, it's used for investor relations. And I think that has been an interesting growth spurt that social has gone through, right? Because it used to just be like, yeah, go over there and like write some tweets. And now there are so many different things that social can be deployed as. And so I don't necessarily think there's the one best way to do things. I think it goes back to that overarching business objective of what you're trying to achieve and then understanding, okay, what are the best platforms for me as a social media manager to invest my time, my resources, my budget, my team's time, whatever that is, and how that contributes into that overarching objective. So I don't think it is that one size fits all. I think it's kind of this top down approach that I'll quickly kind of talk about here. So this idea of taking a business objective, translating that into a digital objective, then translating that into a digital strategy, which then has digital tactics and then metrics that you measure. And so if I take like an example through that, let's say the business objective is maximizing sales. Great. We want to maximize our sales. The digital objective would be like, okay, assuming we sell through our website, we need to drive qualified traffic to our website. Okay, cool. Now the digital strategy, how do we drive traffic to websites in 2020? Okay, probably Facebook or Google, maybe some Instagram. For the sake of this example, let's use Facebook. Okay, the digital tactic, what are we going to use? Are we going to use video link posts? Are we going to use carousels? Okay, sure. How are we going to measure that? Are we going to use clicks? Are we going to use click-through rate? Are we going to use site traffic, conversion rate? What is it? And so I think by starting that top down and making sure that things are linked together and that you can tie back the tactics that you're doing up the chain to how it contributes to the overarching business objective, that's something that I think is really important for social media managers to know and marketers in general, right? Like during this time, I think that's the way that we're going to have to work as we move out of this based on the comments that I said earlier about how I think that marketing is going to go under the microscope. It's never been more important to make sure that what you're doing goes up the ladder and contributes to the business as a whole. Yeah, really, really tracking that return on investment, whether, whether that's sales or something else, but that's all articulated in the goal is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Cool. All right. This has been so good. We're going to jump into our second last question here that we'd like to ask every guest. What brands or individuals do you think are making waves online right now? Oh, such a good one. I had a lot of fun actually going through. There was, there was a bunch that I was looking at. I think one that I really love is Netflix. And I think that they just do such a great job of 
taking long form content and then putting it on social to drive viewership. I think what I'm always really interested with them is also how they, they niche down their accounts. So what I mean by niche down their accounts, they have an account called, I believe it's strong black lead. And it talks about, it's an account, it's a theme account that's based on shows and content that has a strong black lead actor. And so I thought that was like a really cool way of niching down into different communities it's amazing that a brand like that is able to do that because I think the social media nerd in me thinks about the operations behind the scenes, who's running that account, the content you're creating, all those different things. I think it's so smart and it's just been cool to watch that from the outside and also enjoy a lot of that content. So I think Netflix is a big winner for me. I just recently finished Tiger King. Oh, <laughs> Guilty. man. <laughs> Guilty over here. Uh, oh, and, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> and we so, need a whole other episode just to talk about that. I know. that. I feel like that needs like a PhD thesis or something. Yeah. Um, we need to maybe need to start a podcast, qualified. like a watching podcast <laughs> or whatever, a rewatch podcast. Yeah. So I heard there's a new episode coming out. I think it's in two days from now, April 12th. There's one more episode. So What? Yeah. April 12th, I think. And it's like an after show. <gasps> oh my so gosh. add that into your to-do list. But Definitely. Uh, yeah, I think Netflix is, has done a great job. There's another guy on Instagram that I follow and his name is, I'm just going to pull it up here on my phone. So bear with me. His name is Pablo Rochat. I'm probably not pronouncing this right. Pablo Rochat. And he's an art director and his account on Instagram is so interesting and basically what he does is he kind of plays with like different tech optical illusions and like in the feed and so it's hard for me to probably explain it on the podcast but i would recommend it's pablo.rochat r-o-c-h-a-t on instagram he's a very very talented guy and he's kind of building content that's related to pop culture it's related to meme culture and instagram and that sort of thing and that's another one that i really get a kick out of love it so the last question that we have is about what you're currently working on. And feel free to get granular on this because we know that right metric is your thing, you know, mm-hmm. but more specifically, what are you personally working on right now? And mm-hmm. then ultimately where listeners can connect with you. Yeah. So obviously working on building right metric as, as a solution for marketers that solves a challenge. In terms of me personally, I'm trying to do more stuff like this. I'm an awful writer, so I'm trying to write a little bit more content. I'm trying to share some of the experiences that I've had. I do that on LinkedIn. So LinkedIn is probably best to get at me. I actually have a URL that points to my LinkedIn profile. So if you go to connectwithcharlie.com, that'll just take you to to my LinkedIn account. We're also going to be doing a ton of blog content. So writemetric.co slash blog is where you can find our stuff there. I'm actually in the process of starting up a podcast. It's called Measure What Matters. I haven't released any episodes yet, but it'll be on our blog once it goes live uh, in a little while. That's awesome, dude. You're a busy man. (laughs) Just trying to keep all the balls in the air. We have all this extra time now that we've been spending inside, right? Yeah, Yeah. I got to make the most of it. That's a great example. Well, thanks so much for being on the show with us today, man. I think there's a lot of great takeaways from this conversation and our listeners are going to love it. Thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate it and excited to see where you guys go from here as well. Thank you so much. This episode of Wave Social Podcast is powered by Arcade Studios. Show notes for this episode and other episodes can be found at wavesocialpodcast.com. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you've got questions, comments, or suggestions for future shows, hit us up at wavesocial on Instagram. Thanks for joining us.